Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the part two of our fourth edition of Retrospective Prospective Webinar Series uh, from Indic Academy. Uh, my name is uh, Srinivas, and I am uh, the convener of uh, this Retrospective Prospective Webinar Series uh, for Indic Academy. Uh, for today's session, uh, we have Professor Meenakshi Jain. Um, whose lifetime of work so far and what uh, you know, she's about to come up with is the subject of discussion for today's uh, uh, webinar. Um, so we have four uh, very interesting uh, sessions today. Each session, uh, in each session, we have uh, a very well-known interlocutor speaking with uh, uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain about a specific area of her work, uh, specifically uh, some of her books. Um, so the first session will be by uh, Shafali Vaidya. The second uh, will be from Abhinav Agarwal. The third uh, would be by Dr. Swadesh Singh. And the, uh, the fourth session will be by uh, Hari Prasad N. After the four sessions, we will have a Q&A session in which uh, all the questions that you would ask in the Q&A module uh, will be answered by uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain. And uh, I will also discuss with her about her uh, upcoming uh, books and also her current research. So uh, let me start off uh, the, uh, the, the session today with uh, a short biography of uh, 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 Professor Meenakshi Jain. Uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain has been senior fellow of the Indian Council of Social Science Research. She was also fellow of Nehru Memorial Museum and Library. She is former associate professor, Gargi College, University of Delhi. She was member of the governing council of Indian Council of Historical Research. She's also a member of the Academic Council of Nalanda University. Her areas of research include cultural and religious developments in medieval and early modern India. She was awarded the Padma Shri by the Government of India in 2020 for her contribution in the field of literature and education. Her recent publications include Flight of Deities and Rebirth of Temples, published in 2019, The Battle for Rama, uh, The Case of the Temple at Ayodhya, published in 2017, Sati, Evangelicals, Baptist Missionaries, and the Changing Colonial Discourse published in 2016, Rama and Ayodhya published in 2013, The India They Saw, Foreign Accounts of India from the 8th to mid 19th century, published in uh, four volumes or three volumes in 2011, Parallel Pathways published in 2010. Uh, there are several more uh, uh, books uh, by her and uh, uh, in each session, uh, the speaker uh, will mention uh, the books that the uh, uh, the interviewee would be talking about. Um, I will also briefly introduce uh, uh, the interlocutor at the start of each session. Uh, Harikiran Garu, would you like to say a few words today about Indic Academy? No, no, carry on. Let's start. Ah, okay. So uh, let us get started uh, with the first session. I. Um, I request all the panelists to switch off uh, their videos. Uh, 
I request uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain and Shafali Vaidya to switch on their videos and uh, unmute themselves. Done. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, uh, hello, uh, Shafali. Uh, hello. hello, Professor Meenakshi Jain. So uh, the first session we have today is uh, on the subject of the India they saw. Uh, this is um, uh, Shafali Vedya will talk to Professor uh, Meenakshi Jain about uh, the four, uh, three volume or four volume. Professor Meenakshi, is it four volumes or three volumes? I, I, I have both. <laughs> no, no, I, I have compiled three volumes. There are four volumes. The fourth volume was done by Sanjay Jain. I see, I see. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, Shafali Vajay would speak to her about uh, this uh, part of uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain's work. Of course, Shafali Vajay needs no introduction. Um, uh, she is an author, she is a columnist, and uh, she is an activist, and uh, uh, everybody knows her. And I will not uh, you know, spend any further time in uh, giving an introduction to Shafali. Uh, Shafali, please uh, get started. I will switch off my video and unmute, unmute myself. Thank you so much, Srinivas, uh, for this amazing intro. And it's a matter of great privilege for me to conduct this session, uh, this particular session, actually, on these books uh, with Dr. Jain, because travel and the traveler's accounts of India or any of the areas that they've encompassed is something very special for me. And I am actually honored and privileged that Meenakshi ji chose me to conduct this session. So thank you so much, Meenakshi ji. It's thank a great you, honor. Thank you, Shepan. I would like to start with these are monumental works. These are three yes. volumes and they encompass basically, I think, from uh, from 8th century to mid 19th century, right? So it's almost yes. 1200 years yes. of uh, accounts that you have studied and compiled and uh, put together. What I would like to know is how did you think of this monumental work and how does this idea come to you? One. And secondly, what are the challenges you faced in getting all this information and putting it together? So actually, I stumbled on this project by accident. Mm -hmm. uh, Savedya Naipal, he had gone on a tour of Southeast Asia. And he was really impressed by the amount of Indian influence he saw in that region even today. So when he was coming back, he stopped in Delhi and he asked some of us to meet him and there he said that you know the high place that India occupied in the committee of nations in the ancient past seems to have been forgotten by the citizens of India and he said you know it is a crying need that they should remember the way the world saw them so he said that you know as many accounts as you can uh, please collect them and then compile them. And he said, compile them subject-wise and chronology-wise. Hmm. Because it's not possible for a single reader to sit through the whole, you know, voluminous information. So they That's can right. pick up any subject that they want and go to that. So that, I mean, I agreed, not realizing how much work it would entail. <laughs> you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That, that yeah. was uh, really true in my case. So when I started this uh, discovery and this journey, I was actually quite overwhelmed by the sheer amount of data. Hmm. Because the people who wrote on India came from all over the world. 
And can you imagine, there was even a person who came from Iceland. Wow. So imagine. Wow. So, uh, I, I, and I just felt that, you know, and the traders who came, they wrote so much. They wrote reports home. So I realized that it's not going to be possible to, you know, put all this together. I'll be just drowned in the material and so will the reader. Hmm. So that is why I thought that I have to make a judicious selection. Keeping in mind the things that an Indian today would like to know and hear. So that was the uh, basic criteria, but it was a real education for me because I had really not looked at this dimension of our history with, uh, you know, uh, in great detail. So uh, what I learned was something that was so educative for me for my subsequent research. And just one more point that I would like to make. When I was hmm. collecting all this material, then I put it subject-wise. And when I was arranging it subject-wise, I at once noticed that there are such few accounts on Sati till the 18th, 19th century. When we are okay. flooded, when we are flooded with accounts, and all accounts use the same language, it's what we call plagiarization in today's world. Okay. So, so you know, one standard narrative gets repeated in all accounts from the 19th century onwards. That okay. is what that is what prompted me to undertake a subsequent work that I did on Sati. Okay. Amazing, actually. It must have been quite a challenge to gather all the information. Yes. I mean, 1,200 years and yes. multiple travelers from multiple countries going through all of this, collating this information. I mean, we could have an entire seminar just on these books, but since we yes. only have 30 minutes and yes. brevity is the soul of wit, yes. let us yes. uh, try to move on to the next uh, question. I will move to part two uh, of the book. That is your first volume. And that for me personally, as a reader, I found that book the most difficult and most emotional to take because that has the accounts of the Islamic invaders and they themselves have written what has happened in India and how their sultans have attacked and plundered and killed in India. And as a reader, it was very difficult for me to take. So I can imagine as a writer to be able to, you know, uh, take yourself out of the text and to write that must have been quite a task. I would like to focus just on Somnath from this volume. There is a lot of work there in this volume. But let's talk Somnath because it is relevant today. Just as we've seen that our Prime Minister did the Bhumi Poojan or Sri Ram Mandir on 5th of August. Just like that, Somnath was also plundered and looted multiple times. And it was rebuilt after independence. The only other example before uh, Ramjan Bhumi. So yes. I would like you to focus on two uh, raids on Somnath. One by uh, Mahmud of Ghazni in 1025 AD and the second one by Aladdin Khilji about 300 years after him. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about it? It's very interesting that you should mention two raids on Somnath because we have so much evidence on these two raids. Hmm. And, I'll, and I will talk about what the Persian sources write about these two raids. But what we don't know is that we have an eyewitness Indian account of these raids also. Okay. So, so this is, I think, uh, you know, uh, very important that there was a Jain minister 
and he uh, was an eyewitness to Mahmud Ghaznavi's attack on Somnath. And you know, he writes a poem of resistance. So mm -hmm. early back, and he is writing that your attacks cannot diminish the powers of our deities. So this counter statement I found most fascinating. Hmm. Now to come to the Persian accounts, we have several Persian accounts. Uh, the most important is by Al-Biruni, but there hmm. were other historians at that, uh, at that time who also wrote about it. And uh, they all are aware of the importance of Somnath and all right about the great resistance that was put up by the believers of the temple. So, I mean, so this is the first account that we have of Persian writers writing in Persian, each one of them noting how fiercely the Hindus fought to defend that temple. And the number of people who died in that temple is absolutely phenomenal. I don't know whether we can accept these figures at face value, but all Persian writers give the figure of thousands of people coming there to defend the temple. So this is one point. Then Al-Biruni writes that uh, after a lot of resistance, then Mahmud Ghazni was able to take away the link and he uh, broke it into four parts and he That's sent right. it and he sent it to four important centers of Islam. So this is what he writes. And you know, there has been a trend among a certain section of our scholars to underplay this attack on Somnath. That's right. I know which scholars you're talking about. So <laughs> the thing is that uh, the problem is how do you overlook the eyewitness accounts of that period? True. And uh, I would also like to mention one more Hindu response. That is that sometime, uh, all right, one more thing, that you know, the Persian writers, they themselves write that when Mahmud Ghaznavi was going back, he want to take, wanted to take a different route. And he asked some local people to serve as his guide. And these, the one local person, led him deliberately on the wrong route where there was no water. Hmm. So when Mahmud Ghaznavi's army stopped at a particular place and there was no water, then they called this guide and they said, why have you brought us through this route? Because there is no water. Hmm. And the guides, and this is recorded in Persian accounts, and the guide said, I am a devout believer in Lord Sona. And there was no day that I went without going to the temple to worship. Okay. And this is my revenge hmm. for what you did to my Lord. So this is another counter resistance narrative which has been preserved in Persian accounts. This is very okay. interesting. Then uh, you talked about Alauddin Khalji. Alauddin Khalji led because the temple was rebuilt. You see, hmm. the Hindus, they had this tradition which we are becoming conscious of even now. Just hmm. now, let me. We're becoming yeah. aware of this right now. So when the temple is built, then they rebuild it, then they rebuild it, 
it's attacked again and again. So that Alauddin Khalji sends another attack on Somna. And here, this attack is recorded in Persian accounts. But what is most significant, again, is the Hindu resistance recorded by a small Hindu ruler of a kingdom of Jalore. This kingdom of Jalore in Rajasthan lay on the route of the Khalji armies. So when the Khalji armies are coming back from Somnath to Delhi, this ruler attacks the imperial forces and according to an account which is written in the kingdom of Jalore, he actually defeats the Khalji forces. So, you know, and this account by the ruler of Jalore, it is written a few generations later by his great-grandson. The oh. great-grandson, he thought that, you know, my ancestor has done such a noble deed that he took on the Mughal imperial army in defense of Lord Somnath, and I should record his deed for posterity. So we have this book that has survived till today. It is now available in an English translation. So when I look at the studies, the attacks on Somnath by Mahmud Ghaznavi and Alauddin Khilji, mm -hmm. I also feel that the counter narrative by us, by Indians, should also get its space. It's not that we were Absolutely. sitting ducks. We were never sitting ducks that you come destroy and go away. So a, a poet, Hindu poet writing, Dhanpal, a Muslim, a Hindu guide deliberately misleading them so that they don't get water, and the ruler of a tiny kingdom of Jalor recording the resistance. So these are things that should be also emphasized. Absolutely. And the fact that the temple kept on getting rebuilt. Yes. The last destruction of the temple was actually done by Aurangzeb in the 18th century. Yes. So from 1025 AD to 1776 or something when Aurangzeb destroyed it, the yes. temple was rebuilt so many times because we never let go of our sacred spaces. And that is something, that is a lesson about Ayodhya too. Because yes. Hindus never gave up. We never yes. stopped resisting. Yes. Uh, Meenakshi ji, this volume I would recommend everybody to read. It's very difficult. I cried when I read about Timur's raids. But we need to know this. So I, whoever is listening to this, I would request them to read this. It's difficult, but please do. Shefali, now, can, I add, us, Shefali yeah, can, please, I add, can I add just one more thing to yes, Somnath? Yes, that you yes. know, in the 18th century, this Maratha lady, hmm. Ahilya Bai Holkar, she, she should be remembered by every Indian citizen because she's the only lady, only ruler, actually, who built, rebuilt two important temples. She That's built right. the Kashi Vishwanath, rebuilt that, and she yes. rebuilt the Somnath temple. And just what I want to say about the Somnath temple that she rebuilt, can you imagine the Somnath temple that she rebuilt did not have the link on the, in the, on the top floor? Yeah, she constructed an underground chamber so that the ling is kept underground, which That's meant right. that the fear of iconoclasm still was so strong in the 18th century when mm -hmm. Mughal power was parts past its peak. But that fear of iconoclasm, so she instated the shivling in the basement so that uh, an attacker cannot have free run to the shivling. Very true. 
Uh, now we move to the next volume, that is volume three. And here let's talk about happier topics, a topic that uh, is very close to my heart. Let's talk about uh, India's contribution to the economy, particularly in the area of textiles. There are some very interesting accounts in this book by Tavernier, by a lot of other European travelers, which talk mm. about the high quality of Indian textiles and mm. how India had a roaring trade with uh, not just between cities in India, but also with other countries in the West. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, before Tavernier, Tavernier has written the most detailed account of Indian textiles. Mm -hmm. And he has written about the textiles of every region. That's right. He he mentions Kalamkari. He mentions Patola. He mentions Assam Moga silk. Hmm. He mentions uh, indigo and the dyeing of cotton into indigo, the process by which indigo was prepared. So, the, you know, there were people before Tavernier, like some French accounts we have, hmm. small accounts, uh, which try to understand the process of, you know, uh, uh, putting designs on cloth, you know, mm. embossing mm. designs on cloth. So we, those are very, very stray accounts that we have because they did not survive. So we just have a para or two. But Tavernier, he was, who was Tavernier? He was a jeweler. Actually, he came from France mm. and he specialized in selling jewels and he sold jewels to the Mughal emperors also. But he was very interested in Indian crafts, arts, and gems. So mm. he wrote, I mean, he has written the most extensive account of every, because every region was producing its own quality of textiles. And the mm. textiles that were being produced in one region were not being produced in another. So in the 17th century, when he's writing, every region was had specialized in a particular form of textiles. Hmm. And, and this person who's coming from France actually is able to note the specialization of each region. He That's talks right. about he talks about Dhaka muslin. So uh, this is an amazing account. But since you mentioned Tavernier, and I said that he was a jeweler. Tavernier has written the most fascinating account of the diamond business in Golconda. Golconda, okay. uh, Golconda was a center of diamond. It, had, it was famous for its diamond mines. And uh, Tavernier being a dweller, he spent a lot of time in Golconda and he was amazed to note how the dwellers, Indian dwellers, started training their children in the trade from the time they were 10. Hmm. And, and he, it presents a very, very interesting account that, you know, they would be given a certain sum of money. And all the children would sit in a line under a tree outside the mines. And, you know, how did they negotiate? They never speak. They don't speak. So from a finger which was inside their dress, they would indicate how much they're bidding. And then wow. the next, yeah, so it's absolutely, and then, you know, how much profit should they make? How much should they sell it for? And he says that in the entire process, because if you speak, then the next person will hear your business 
you know how much you are trying to make how much so the entire process is conducted with not a word spoken so it's a fascinating mm -hmm. account that he has presented and one more thing that tavernia was allowed by the mughal emperor aurangzeb to see the mughal jewels mm. and you know the mughal jewels they were brought to him in trays and when the kohinoor came he is written this he asked the emperor can i lift it and see it okay so yeah so he is allowed to actually feel the kohinoor diamond and and is really overwhelmed by the kind of richness of india in every field you talked about economy he has written so much about trade he has written so much about textiles internal That's trade right. and external trade you know because the, yeah. when he wrote because the time when he wrote the route to india that had been stopped by the expansion of islam vasco da gama had found the new route to india hmm. and in 1600 we have the founding of the east india company and so many european trading companies were formed around that time so we have you know so many trading company representatives coming to india and all of them they they come because you know the exotic products of india there is such a demand for them hmm. and it's very surprising that uh, unlike today i don't know whether this situation is true today but india actually hardly needed anything from there hmm. it was those people who were coming who wanted to take as much as they could out of india and sell it to europe because there was such a craze for indian things so these are fascinating accounts that tavernia provides us he is the most a beautiful writer he has written extensively and he has written as you know somebody who's overawed by what he sees over here yes. it's a, it's yes. an emporium it's an emporium of goods yes it's a very fascinating account it's also account uh, written by somebody who can appreciate beauty yes and it never looks down upon uh, the never. indian crafts and tradition in fact it he there's always this sense of awe and yes. wonderment so i yeah. really enjoyed reading that part of uh, this book again want... there is so much to talk about in this volume alone but since we only have 30 minutes and there are other uh, books also of yours that need to be discussed i move to the next volume which is the final volume volume 4 which is 18 to 19th century accounts of foreign travelers in this we have talked now so uh, far about islamic invasions and what they did to our temples we talked a little about our economy and how uh, foreign accounts saw of our economy in this volume i would like you to focus on two very important things which have always been used by you know uh, people who are against india to uh, to make up a narrative against india which is india's treatment of women mm -hmm. and what is india's uh, reaction or the hindu reaction to conversions and how did they view their own religion and their own faith in their religion so in this yeah. volume volume 3 if you could focus on these two subjects that will give us a good uh, picture so i will uh, combine both these questions because they are actually interlinked hmm. now uh, all the travelers who come till the time of the missionaries they notice the centrality of the institution of marriage hmm. 
and they know that adultery is very rare in India. And they note that family, the family is so important. They note that, you know, young boys, brothers, they save the entire year, whatever they earn, so that on Rakhi, they can buy some small trinket for their sister. So this, you know, human touch, the centrality of the institution of marriage, adultery, very rare, the devotion of the married couple to each other and the devotion of the family to every family member. This is there in all accounts. Now what happens, this narrative begins to change in the 19th century. Hmm. Now what happens at that time? You see, there was the revolution, French revolution, and England was also scared that that virus of the revolution should not spread to its country. And they said that the reason for the French revolution is Voltaire. Because Voltaire has talked a preach irreligion. So we have to counter Voltaire. And how do we counter him? By distributing Bible in thousands and also distributing Bible in the countries where we are in control. Hmm. Now, so at this time, we have the birth of the evangelical movement. That evangelical movement means converting people in your own country and outside. Now, India was the biggest jewel in the British crown. So obviously, they thought that it, they should come to India to convert. The East India Company was very clear. They said, we have gone to make money. We have not gone to transform that society. And many early Englishmen who were members of the East India Company, they said it's such a highly evolved civilization. We have much to learn from it. And don't come and disrupt social peace over here. So this was the dominant attitude of the East India Company, very favorable to Hindu civilization. I say I deliberately use the word Hindu civilization because that is what they said. Indian civilization in its most ancient past. That is the words that they use. So why did this attitude change? It changed for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was the industrial revolution that happened in England. There was the scientific revolution that happened in England. England won finally over uh, Napoleonic France. It won military victories. And in India, in 1818, it finally defeated the most potent threat to its position in India, that was the Marathas. Hmm. So when the British company defeated the Marathas, and it had won Napoleon, it had won over France, and it had had the industrial and scientific revolution, then the attitude of the company officials also began to change. And they now began to say that if India is so great, then how are we going to justify a presence here? So they, there was a major change and they began to rule as strangers. The domination of strangers, it is called. And they set up Haleybury College in 1806. Why did they set up Haleybury College in England? Because they said all company officials who are coming to India, they're succumbing to the disease of Indianization. They're becoming Hindus. So they don't know anything about their own culture. They know so much about India. 
So now we are a dominant power in Europe and in India, and we have to teach them the value that we are superior. So it is this change in attitude that led to the entry of missionaries in India in 1830. And that is around that time, we get a lot of critical writings on India, but before the coming of the evangelical movement, it's difficult to find any critical account of it. That's very interesting, actually. And I can see that if you read all the volumes, you'll be able to see that in the first three volumes, the, the matter on families, family structures, women is uniformly uh, complementary by and large. Yes. It's only in the last account that uh, you start seeing a whole different picture of the oppressed women, of the yes. caste, of conversion. But yes. even in this volume, they talk about Hindus saying that we believe in our religion, you believe in your yes. religion. We are not coming to convert you, so please don't come and tell us what is yes. good for us. Yes. In fact, Abbot Du Bois, he was a French Jesuit. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, I've been in India for more than three decades. And I don't think that they've been able to uh, make even one convert. Hmm. Because he said the social system is so integrated that nobody needs to uh, opt out of it. Hmm. And all missionaries expressed exasperation at their failure to convert. Hmm. Robert de uh, Nobili, who came, you know, who was an Italian, he said he came and started dressing like a Brahmin, eating like a Brahmin, you know, he would wear those uh, padukas, the dhoti, and uh, all those clothes, and he would fast on so many days, turned vegetarian, hoping that he would be able to make some conversions. Mm -hmm. But they all failed. And okay. the reason was the integrated nature of the society where each one had a place and a space, and they were all interlinked. It made no sense to break out. Hmm. So now, actually, ironically, uh, you see that happening even today in India, in Andhra and in Kerala. The same thing of cultural appropriation where the missionaries yes. will wear saffron, they will adopt all the Hindu cultural practices, they will turn the diya and put a cross on it and celebrate Onam yes. and stuff like that. Yes. So it's it's very interesting to see this. Uh, Meenakshi ji, this has been really wonderful and I wish we had more time to discuss uh, these you. books. These are voluminous books and there is so much in them that uh, they're kind of like they're not a one-time read you keep them and you pick out subjects Whatever, and you keep yes. going back and forth back it's, and an forth. it's an anthology that's right but I would like to ask you the last question. You did this tremendous research and you've referred to it at the beginning of this discussion. But I want to specifically know that reading all this information, looking at your country for a while while you were writing this book through other people's eyes, how did it change your perception of India? And has that perception of India, whatever knowledge that you gain from other people's point of view, has that enriched you and has that helped you in your journey as a scholar historian? Absolutely. Thank you for asking me this very interesting question. The first thing that struck me was the number of people who took the trouble to come to India, not for economic purposes. This hmm. trade and all is a separate thing. I'm not getting into that. But there were so many people who came so early when there was no great means of communication. And mm. that led me to appreciate the space that India had succeeded in creating for itself 
in the eyes of the world so early on. And you will be surprised to note, or perhaps you know, that the earliest account that we have of a person who could have visited India is the great Greek Pythagoras. Hmm. We are all we've all heard of Pythagoras theorem. That's but right. there is yeah, but there is a very strong belief that he came to India, and that belief is strengthened by what he taught. Hmm. He taught metempsychosis. What is this theory? It is the theory that when a body dies, the soul does not die with that body, it enters another soul. Hmm. And it is so surprising that in the 6th century BC, that is when he's placed, he should be articulating this viewpoint, which has remained so integral to Indian culture, philosophy, religious thinking, uh, down the millennium. And, yeah. any, and every citizen of this country, even today, is so familiar with this philosophy. So uh, I'm sure in, Indians went abroad to trade you know, from the Indus Valley civilization mm -hmm. we have. But uh, I have not come across any account of Indians going out of India in search of spiritual knowledge. The Chinese, so many of them came in search of turning Buddhism. Yes. And, you know, we had so many uh, invaders uh, who ruled over Northwest India before the coming of Islam. We had Greeks, we had Persians, we had Shakas, we had Kushans, we had Huns. But each of these rulers, they immersed themselves completely in the spiritual traditions of this country. So this is something that really struck me, that to carve out an identity without any PR work, if I can put it that way, so mm. early on, and to be known you know, when Alexander came to India, he uh, met a group of people who were called gymnosophists in the Greek accounts. And these gymnosophists were naked philosophers. And those philosophers have remained part of our spiritual landscape till today. That's right. You know, if you, I mean, and, uh, Nagas, naked sadhus, Jain, Munis, I mean, so many of them. And he yes. and and he encounter and every Greek who came with Alexander has written about his encounter with the gymnosophists. So imagine Pythagoras writing about, uh, you know, the soul not dying with the body. The Greeks with Alexander writing about gymnosophists. So this uh, ability to create an awareness and an ident an awareness about your quest, civilizational quest, so early on, and to create a distinct identity. That has remained. We, Greek civilization was a very noble civilization, but no trace of that remains. We That's have right. remained, we have remained, we have a living link with our past even today. Yes. In fact, that is what uh, Conrad Elstead actually written. Ki that's what uh, bothers the, the, the leftist narrative about us. The fact that we are alive. 
if yes. we were dead and uh, you know in a museum like the greeks or the romans or the egyptian they would be kind to us they yes. would even have annual festivals and conferences or whatever what really irks them is the fact that all of this this living tradition still exists and still enriches us and it is still a part of our daily lives very much in our spiritual thought in our dresses in our rituals everything uh minakshi ji thank you so much this has been a wonderfully enriching experience and i don't know if i have overshot my time but uh, it's been truly wonderful and uh, i wish you all the best for your next project and uh, hope to have more interactions with you in the future thank you so much shefali thank you so much thank you very much shefali for this wonderful session you in fact did not uh, overshoot um we had a very short introduction today and okay. the usual invocation also we did not have today so uh, i i have a few minutes probably i could ask one of the questions um yeah. that was uh, uh, typed out here uh, of a professor meenakshi uh, this is coming from um, sri srinivasan kalyan raman ji mm. uh, <laughs> so he is asking us today uh, namaste srinivasan ji <laughs> um so audrey trushke is uh, the author of two award winning books culture of encounters sanskrit at the mughal court and uh, aurangzeb she is a foreign writer about india is she telling the truth or playing communal politics interfering in internal affairs of bharat if she is lying should she be countered with facts so this is his question i thought you know maybe because we have a few minutes left uh, in the planned uh, time you know maybe if you could answer this i have read both her books and i think that uh, the book on aurangzeb was a real shoddy work and uh, it did not behove a person who wants to be regarded as a serious academic uh, certainly uh, the book should be countered and it can be countered and uh, this is something that has to be done what is happening is that in the uh, western academia and particularly in america there is a very strong uh, anti hindu group that is there and uh, when one right one of them writes an anti hindu tract then the kind of uh, you know uh, facility uh, the kind of praises that are heaped on that person by that group is something that really needs to be examined and uh, i think her book has been uh, not well appreciated by serious uh, people who have reviewed her book so i really think that uh, there should be a counter because that is the only way to you know put these people in their place uh, thank you meenakshi ji and uh, thank you very much shafali i know you yourself are a budding historian your lecture on the hindu christian encounters in goa is quite popular on the internet and i know you attended the weekend with the wisdom program of indic academy with meenakshi jain ji in right, yeah. govardhan uh, eco yeah. village i think abhinav agarwal was there as well that's um, right so yeah uh, your relationship and you know uh, with meenakshi ji shows uh, you know very clearly and we hope you continue to do your work in the domain of history shafali thank you very much thank you so much rinwas before i end just one more thing meenakshi ji's and my relationship is somehow intricately linked with the ram mandir in fact the weekend with wisdom was on the same day next day when the judgment came out and yes. now this interaction is within days of the bhumi pujan happening <laughs> yes, so i yes. think there's something great <laughs> in the offering when the mandir is completed but thank you so much for indicating me and shrinivas yeah. for giving me this chance thank you shafali I